Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Stobb, two corporate attorneys here with Pasha Law. Yeah, this is where we cover business in the news and add our legal twist. And welcome back to our next episode. It's been a little bit of time here, but we're ready to just jump into a great topic that I know Matt is, we've always discussed how Matt is just an expert in dress. And so this is just right up his alley. Yeah. Really excited for today. Big fashion person here. I know a lot about fashion. I've never had any issues with any dress code. So I think we're, we're well suited, no pun intended, for a good, a good episode here. A good one. Well, so dress codes in the workforce, in the workplace, from an employer, business perspective, it's relatively straightforward. But I, I really feel in the past two, three, even you know, four years or so, there's definitely been some change in how the same law has been applied, and that's specific to gender-based dress codes. And I think that's the really only the real change. And so how we're going to approach this episode is we're going to start with the basics and kind of go over some old law tenants and kind of go from there and just talk about how things are changing now and how employers can address these issues today, which I, I think is becoming increasingly more difficult. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And the implementation's gone the way of how a lot of things have gone the last five, 10 years is people have become a lot more, I don't want to say touchy, but sensitive about things or wanting to raise an issue about things. And dress in the workplace has been a big part of it. You can look at all the the lawsuits that have been filed, some of them very public for companies. And honestly, it's probably something that people wouldn't even think twice about 10, 20, 30 years ago. But that's not the point. It's there's still the law and employers still have to follow the law. So like you said, we're, we're going to try to put employers in the best place possible to not, not have any lawsuits come down their way. So dress codes have been around for ages. I mean, this is nothing new for most employers. Everywhere from Starbucks has their uniforms and their dress codes to, I don't know, even gas attendants have their uniform with their name tag on it, or in the workplace where you're supposed to wear, whether it's business casual or formal wear or casual wear or casual Fridays. These are all pretty familiar terms. Well, at least I had to look up some of the differences between business casual and smart casual. I don't know if you, you caught those differences, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I guess the difference between smart casual and business casual is that somehow it's a little bit of a step up from business casual. So like, I guess you wear a vest or if you want to want to look really smart, you wear a tie maybe. I mean, if, you, if you have to ask, then you're, then you're not qualified enough to, to be smart casual, but that's fine. So here's the interesting thing to me is it's kind of been two different things at play. There's there's been these rules and laws that have been in place that maybe not have, haven't always been followed or haven't been implemented or haven't been you know, litigated even. They've always been there. And then you also have kind of a more, a more casual and more casual dress of these younger generations that are coming through as well. So it's kind of a combination of there's rules in place and they're sometimes more strictly enforced, but you also have the actual employees who are out there who want to dress more casual and are being allowed to dress more casual. So it's a very tough spot for employers because they need to know where to draw the line or I guess where they can legally draw the line on what's allowed to be prohibited from being worn or how someone's dressed as opposed to where we can try to step in and enforce these, these laws, both from a federal and state standpoint. Yeah. And so from a federal perspective, to be more specific, there's no 
actual law that says how a employer may have a dress code. In fact, it's pretty open. Employers can implement, in general, whatever dress code they want, so long as they do not discriminate. And from a federal perspective, that's based upon gender, race, religion, disability, or any other federal federally protected status. And so just to be clear, it's not the actual dress code that's an issue. It's that if the implementation or the impact of the dress code causes discrimination. So for example, Starbucks, I think I just mentioned, had a pretty strict dress code. They had it so that it was kind of this, what they would call a drabby, chic kind of color scheme of what the baristas were supposed to wear. And only until recently now, they're allowing the so-called individuals to shine and allow them to wear a little bit more different colors instead of just the plain black and white tops that they may have been required to wear in the past. And so that type of policy is uh, under the law is totally acceptable. And there, and there hasn't been any kind of objection that that somehow discriminate against any protected class. Yeah, and, and contrast this to uh, a policy against wearing backwards hats or hoodies, because that's not going to be appropriate for the workforce. But at the same time, it's not discriminating against any of these protected classes. So they're allowed to kind of show their, the way I think of it as uh, the office space flair, right? It's, it's a little bit way to show their personality, but there is a line that's drawn. And the reason they can't wear certain things like backwards hats, for example, is it's not discriminating against any sort of class. Precisely. And so then when this federal law comes down, and by, by the way, from a state perspective, the analysis is pretty much the same, except some states like California expand the number of classes to other, other statuses like your sexual orientation or your family status. And so those are some things that can come into play as well. But I think that one of the two main things, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail, but just to kind of give some quick examples, is religion and, and race. And so as an example of where race discrimination was not held to come into play is where a employer had a dress code where they were requiring one of the either, I can't remember if it was an employee or prospective employee from wearing their hair in a way that had dreadlocks. And the argument was that, okay, this employer is discriminating against a certain race, which is African-American, who they typically have a dreadlock. And so therefore, this is discrimination for this dress code. In that instance, and this is back only just a year ago, so it's, it should still be good law, the 11th Circuit b- dismissed the lawsuit saying that the company that refused to hire a woman because she wouldn't cut her dreadlocks was acceptable. And that was a unanimous 3-0 decision. So uh, along similar lines, there was uh, an instance of an individual uh, who had the Church of the American Knights of the KKK, which is the fiery cross tattooed on his arm. The, the employer wanted him to cover that up. Uh, that was not found to be discriminatory on the basis of any sort of religion. The flip side of that being at a, at a Red Robin, and they, a woman had, I believe it was a woman, had tattoos on her wrists that were religious-based. They were trying to make her cover those up, and that was discriminatory because it was basically not allowing her to... It was, it was something that was purely religious-based and wasn't allowing her to, to display that, and that was discriminatory based on religion. Yeah, so you can see like that this is not a, a very clear issue when it comes to actual discrimination at, at play. It's not just about whether the dress code is, sounds good or not, because it's it's usually going to have a some kind of purpose, right? Hiding tattoos in a, in a lot of uh, different workplaces would make sense for a lot of people, and depending upon what the position is. And typically, if you can rationalize the purposes for it, 
it's going to be allowed. But if it's connected to some kind of illegal purpose, then that's where we really get into trouble. So let's talk about religious-based issues when it comes to dress codes. I think the the Supreme Court actually held it. It was uh, probably two or three years ago. We actually covered it in our podcast, which was a Supreme Court case where Abercrombie and Fitch actually refused to hire somebody because they were wearing a headscarf. And the <laughs> there was some interesting facts in that, in the, in the sense that they actually found out that because they didn't want to make a religious accommodation because they didn't allow headwear was part of the reason why they didn't hire that person. Of course, a reasonable accommodation, it's pretty pretty reasonable to allow your workforce, especially in a retail environment, to wear a headscarf, especially for religious reasons. So that Supreme Court was pretty tough on Abercrombie. And I remember even the late Justice Scalia was, he even described it as this is a pretty easy case, you know, uh, if you recall. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's and you mentioned that you know it's it's not always obvious. I think this is a case where it was. I mean, not just to say because Scalia said that, but it, it is pretty obvious. And to get all the way to the Supreme Court to have one of the justices say that's a little bit embarrassing, I suppose. But I mean, you're exactly right. It, it dealt with reasonable accommodation for Abercrombie, and you know, basically the test is for these religious based practices, they need to provide a reasonable accommodation unless it would cause an undue hardship on the employer. In this case, wearing the headscarf is not an undue hardship for the employer. Everybody knows exactly what, if anyone's walked by an Abercrombie, everyone knows exactly what they were trying to do here. They have a very distinct way they want these people to look that work there. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to make any assumptions, uh, <laughs> directly make any assumptions, but it seems to me that they just, this individual, this this woman didn't fit the quote unquote style that they had that Abercrombie typically has with the people that work there. When if, if they would have just followed the law, I mean, it's just a reasonable accommodation, just allowing her to wear that. There's there's no undue hardship here. Yeah. And another example is the NYPD. There was a case not too long ago about I believe sick individuals that are required to wear turbans were, at first, they were not permitted part of the dress code. A turban is not permitted as, as a police officer. And then they were allowed to, so long it was the color blue or matched, matched the uniform. And same with uh, a, a beard or facial hair. So that also came into play as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not always obvious. The case of the headscarf, I mean, I think that might be a little bit more obvious to employers or someone from the outside looking in, but it can be a little bit more minute than that. So for example, like you said, facial hair, uh, somebody might have a beard and that could be a purely purely religious reason they don't cut their facial hair. And the potential employee might walk in and, and do the interview. The employer might refuse to hire them because they have this beard and not even knowing that, oh, look, this is uh, this is not appropriate. And, and the same goes with, I mean, there's other religions that have certain types of hair that they have, you know, I'm not talking facial hair anymore, we're talking hair on top of your head. And so it's, I mean, I wish we could give some sort of direct guidance on this, but it's, I mean, I guess what we can say is just because somebody looks a certain way that you're not used to, you being the employer, don't assume that they're looking that way just because they like it. It, it could be a purely religious reason. And, and keep in mind, having the dress code in itself may not be the issue. It's the implementation in the sense that, okay, let's say you have a no facial hair policy. And if no one brings up the fact that, hey, I need facial hair for religious reasons, you're in pretty protected ground because the religious accommodation does require some kind of communication or notice 
on behalf of the employee, if there's no kind of engagement in that, and you know, for example, in the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, uh, case, there was a discussion that well, the employee didn't even enter into that reasonable accommodation process between employer and employee because they weren't even hired. But of course, the argument is, well, you didn't even allow the employee to do that. In fact, you assume that because they have a headscarf that this is a no-go and that because it's 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 assumed that she's wearing it for religious reasons, she's not going to take it off, and so therefore it's not permitted. But you're right. With facial hair, it's different because you have to look at the motivations behind the facial hair and something that is typically can be seen as something secular as you know having tattoos or having facial hair you do have to dig a little bit uh, more deep on that. I mean, it's, and we, we keep talking about reasonable accommodation. I mean, it's it's not just that. I mean, it could be based on disparate treatment, retaliation as well. So let's say you have somebody who's in, you know, employees in there, and I'm trying to think of, a, of an example. I probably can't because I'm, I'm not discriminatory in nature. But, you know, somebody comes in and they're wearing, you know, I'll just use the headscarf example there, or maybe it's something that they only wear or do certain times of the year, religiously based. I mean, you can't retaliate against them by firing them or even worse, doing some sort of job segregation, putting them somewhere else. It's, it's not just reasonable accommodations. There's other parts that go into it as well. Yeah. Segregation is a good example too. I mean, I've seen that personally where, okay, hey, we'll hire you, but hey, you have to be in the back because we don't want to show people that we hire Muslims or some other easily identifiable religious group or even you know racial group or, or what have you. I mean, that, that's uh, entirely inappropriate. And you also mentioned timing too. I mean, you know, we all know that in general when it comes to religious practices, there's a lot of people that kind of go up and down as far as their level of practice. And so they may practice uh, religion one day and not the other, but just because they do that doesn't mean that they don't have that same protection. And, and so, again, it's just, it, on one hand, this is old law and stuff, but if you know the rules and you kind of just keep keep yourself familiar and aware of what's being asked and the sensitivities of different minority religions or, or religions religions in general, then you should be on on pretty safe ground. Uh, a couple more things I want to say about the religion aspect. I mean, I think real quick, I, it also goes unsaid that uh, even though I'm saying it now, uh, workplace harassment based on based on religion, obviously a, a, a no-no here. But also, so we've been talking kind of broadly just from the federal standpoint, because a lot of these cases are brought in federal court once, once, you know, if there's a lawsuit filed. So the test is a little bit more narrow than than California. I don't know how many, you know, depending on what state you're in, obviously. But so in fed, in, under Title Seven, it's basically if the reasonable accommodation standard, if it's reasonably possible without undue hardship, the burden from the federal standpoint is to minimize burden on the employer. In California, it's actually um, the employer has to demonstrate significant difficulty or expense. So, I mean, that's something to keep in mind for those employers in California, one of the states we practice in. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty obviously that's a much higher burden, a quote unquote significant difficulty or expense. I mean, that's that's going to be pretty difficult to show if you want to go that route of trying to say that you're reasonably accommodating one of your employees based on religious beliefs. And and of course, that's pretty typical for uh, a California law to kind of take that perspective. So we talked about religious base and we kind of touched on racial. And I think that's that's a little bit more from a racial perspective, that's a little bit more straightforward. But what's interesting about all these is that 
there is a level of stereotyping that comes into play as to whether or not it is discriminatory. And gender discrimination is perfect for that because I would say that the law, I think, is a little inconsistent in this area in the sense that on one hand, there's a level of tolerance of having gender stereotyping of dress codes. In other words, the law tolerates if you have a dress code where men are supposed to wear ties and uh, women are supposed to wear dresses. Right. Up to a certain extent. And I think that's, and especially now when it comes to so many gender issues are now kind of entering the law this past few years that this line of what is allowed and not allowed is starting to move quite a bit. And it's something that you should be very uh, cognizant of if you do have any kind of strict dress code in this regard. You're exactly right. It's, you know, if, if we're talking a couple decades ago, it's really, it was really probably no questions asked. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> this is how the men are supposed to dress. This is how the women are supposed to dress. And, you know, if you don't like it, then we're going to fire you. That's not going to fly in, in 2017. So it is, uh, I, I would say, I mean, this, in my opinion, the, the gender-based dress code issues are, are probably the, the hottest topic. I mean, I know we talked about a bunch of religious one, but especially when you factor in the, the transgender that's coming into play as well, that's getting implemented in laws. I mean, it's, it's definitely the, the focal point if you want to hone in on one of these topics in terms of the dress code. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so I, I want to talk about one case. It was back in 2006. And I think this this case is very telling as to where the law is still even today, but also gives you indication of where it's moving. And that was in uh, 2006. It was uh, a person named Jesperson. And she worked for uh, Harris Casino out in Nevada, where she was fired after she refused to follow a company policy requiring women and, and only women to wear makeup while at work. And this is part of their, you know, grooming and hygiene policy. It would be considered part of their dress code. And, you know, they had to wear white button-down shirts, black pants, a black vest. But for this particular woman, she felt that, you know, the, the requirement for makeup just didn't fit her personal style or I think, what did she say? Conflicted uh, with her self-image. Her self-image. And so, and so, of, so she refused and so she was, she was fired. And, of course... Uh, shortly thereafter, she filed a suit under the same Title VII uh, that we discussed about uh, based upon discrimination, based upon gender. Yeah, and ultimately, uh, ultimately she ended up losing. And basically, the, there was the, like you said, the test that was formed. And essentially, it's, so it's okay to have different dress or grooming requirements for men and women, so long as doing so does not place an unfairly heavy burden on either sex. And I mean, I guess that is the case here. It's not placing a burden on one or the other. So, you know, well, I guess let me, let me dial that back a second. She also didn't present any evidence as to, she said it did unfairly burden her because it was, the makeup policy was degrading and demeaning, but she didn't really present any evidence as to, you know, how this placed an unfair uh, burden on, on females as opposed to males. So maybe there is something there, who knows? I, I still think no, but you know, it's, that's really the test that was, has come out of this and has dictated a lot of these gender-based uh, discrimination cases. And, and you hit on that evidence thing, and I, and I don't want to get too in the weeds with this legal stuff, but it, it is an important issue. Because she didn't present any evidence to support the, the undue burden, doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't right. evidence out there. Right. She just didn't present it. And so the court kind of left it open, and that's this is where I'm kind of getting at where things may be moving in the sense that 
the court left it open that if maybe down the line that a plaintiff can show that there was an undue burden, and that that determination is somewhat dependent upon what the evidence is and who the fact finder is, which could be a judge or a jury. And I I could easily see cases where even with a very similar to same fact pattern, if not now later coming down in a, yeah. in a very different way. I mean th- this this. This makeup issue in particular is not nothing new. I mean, there's this. Uh, I was researching this article or this podcast I, in 2014. There's a whole scathing blog post of, of the person who just talks about her experience of her boss wanting her to wear makeup, and because whatever reasons the boss said, it was it was a little demeaning. But she just goes on, and so this is this is going to be a recurring issue, and I can definitely see how there might be some pushback because, and by the way, of course, it doesn't stop at. Well, makeup. so just real Either. quick on this too. I mean, so you said this was 2006 and I, I mean, I don't think there's any question there was, if the females were required to wear makeup, that is a burden. It's just a matter of how significant the burden is. And I think every year since then, the, the gap of what the burden is, is shrinking and getting smaller and smaller. I mean, we're talking what, 11 years later, I bet if, you know, if this case was filed today, I don't know if we would even have the same result. I mean, that might be a uh, significant enough of a burden for her to show. I mean, and to go into your cases, the one, the other one you mentioned was a little bit different. Uh, I think the quote was, you need to wear makeup every day to work because I don't think you look presentable or professional without it. Obviously that's a problem. If you say something like that, <laughs> a little bit different yeah. story, but, um, yeah. that's just mean, right? <laughs> well, it's, yeah. a, it's a whole nother issue that that, that employer is going to have to deal with. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it comes down to, the standards, whether it places an unequal burden on the opposite sex. I mean, that's that's how a lot of these are going to come down. Like you said, it, it's not just makeup. It can be dress as well. We're talking, you can't prohibit women employees from wearing pants, for example. I mean, that that's one example. If you're treating them unfairly or you're burdening just the females. And a lot of these are just burdening the, the female gender, unfortunately. You don't see a lot of the male ones, but occasionally you do. Yeah, the... I think they're calling it the male skirt rebellion of 2017 <laughs> where, okay, so so to kind of make it simple here, because because of certain dress code policies and because it's very hot in the summer amidst of especially a heat wave, a certain men in, in certain groups uh, started wearing dresses instead of, uh, or skirts, I should say, skirts instead of pants. And I, I think uh, other other groups like bus drivers started getting into it. Almost on one hand, in protest, and I think there was a little element of just being, you know, funny about it. But there was definitely an element of, of protesting because, I mean, I mean, frankly, I mean, I I understand it may be warm, but you know, wearing pants isn't like the, you know, it's not like you're going to die. But it, it does add a level of discomfort, and so depending upon what you do, and so ultimately, what ended up happening after the protest, in some cases, they started allowing the employees to wear, I don't know what they're called, like three, they said three, four shorts, basically shorts that go past the knee. But yeah, and, you know, we can post a link. Of course you have, it's just a bunch of men taking pictures of themselves in what would traditionally be considered female dresses. So we talked about from the gender perspective, grooming and dress, it can't create an unequal burden on one gender in terms of expense time, preparing for work, et cetera. So, what about uniforms? Because that could be, I think oftentimes you'll see, going back to what you said earlier, I mean, you'll have uniforms and oftentimes the male uniforms will be different from the female uniforms. Yeah. And 
and it's kind of the same issue again. I mean, there's this, there is this tradition, uh, whether we agree with it or not, that really tolerates different roles between men and women, and even even what people would consider stereotyping, and that could also apply to uniforms as well. Yeah, and so you know what I'm what I'm getting at here is, you know, employers can't can't have a uniform policy which requires women to wear dresses or skirts. Um, and you know, another thing too, we're, we talk about gender. I th- one thing I want to touch on before we get done here is, is all we we talked about all the discrimination cases, but one class I don't think gets mentioned a lot in the dress code is dealing with uh, disabled employees. And this connects to uniforms because you can't have a uniform that's difficult to, difficult for them to put on or take off because you're not providing a reasonable accommodation for the disabled employees. So I think that's a very small subset that probably gets overlooked a lot, but it does have to deal with this uniform aspect. So I wanted to put that in there. Going back to the uniforms, you know, it's, again, it has to be consistent. You have to treat, treat both genders equally. But then we get into the topic of uniforms for like a specific business or a specific purpose. I mean, I think the classic example would be the Hooters or the Tilted Killed or something like that. That's a little bit different. It, it's still the same issues apply, except that there's something called a bona fide occupational qualification, or I like to call it, like everybody else, BFOQ, because it's too hard to remember. That's its own category. And so uh, it's a common question. How does Hooters and these other I forget what the type of restaurants, the category, but those types of restaurants, how do they get away with those kinds of dress code standards? And the reason is, is it's not that far from being a, I mean, this is a little crass, but like to be a strip club or some kind of form of entertainment or a dance club or where the waitresses are part of the presentation of the restaurant in itself. I think the the way to put it is, it has to be only where the, the sex classification is required to preserve the essential nature of the business. So Hooters, I mean, that's, it is what it is, right? It's, it's in the name. I mean, that's, that's going to be, that's the perfect example of preserving this essential nature. Now we can debate how essential this is in general, but you know, from, from this business's perspective, this business model, it's essential to, to their model. And that's how it's going to fit this qualification, this exception. Yeah, and it's a. It, it, you're right, though. You're kind of pointing out a peculiar kind of instance. So, where does the food come in in all this? Like, is the food an essential part of this, or are they both essential? It, it, it does make it kind of interesting, and so it kind of shows you the extremes of this uh, of these dress codes. On one hand, pretty much you can require whatever you want for the women at Hooters to wear, but when it comes to an office, since there's no bona fide occupational. Uh, qualification that requires women to wear something completely different than men, that kind of dress code wouldn't wouldn't fly. There would be no kind of uh, it, yeah. w- it would definitely create an undue burden between the sexes. Yeah, I mean it's I mean the bottom line here is a dress code policy. It's overtly based on sex is illegal on its face, and I mean this is the exception to it. So I, I think that's a good way to approach it. But at the same time, again, you know, courts. I've just seen too many cases where. From a legal analysis, they may not approach it that way, but I think from an employer perspective, you should assume that if you are having two different types of uniforms or dress codes that are difference between gender, then it, it's probably not the best 
best approach. And you should consider right. kind of reviewing that and making sure. Because like I said, there are there are cases that do allow dress codes that are different for men and women. It's just most of the time, and I think where the trend is going, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, and, and here's the thing too that's kind of unfortunate from the legal perspective is a lot of these potential, I mean, the, the law is still very gray, like we said from the beginning, unlike the dispersion case, a lot of these get settled out and we don't get an actual answer. And so even with the case we talked about, you know, not to get too deep in the law, like you said, but evidence just wasn't presented. That does, I mean, it could have gone the other way if it was. So, you know, with that case, it's a little bit different, but a lot of these cases, the lawsuit gets filed, usually on the federal side, and there's some sort of settlement. And so we're, that's great for the employees, but we don't have answers. So as an employer, it's still kind of difficult to navigate your way. But like you said, treat it equally, be consistent. And I think what gender or not, the bottom line is in your employee handbook, if you have one for the dress code and the grooming policies, it just needs, you know, it needs to be reasonable requirements um, for all employees, you know, just to make sure it's lawful. Yeah. And and I know that a lot of employers have stricter kind of standards than others, whether they're trying to create a certain environment for their workplace or they're trying to have a certain presentation to their customers. But just remember that there are a lot of pitfalls, legal pitfalls to all this. you got to have your dress codes reviewed by an attorney, not only the dress code itself, but how the dress codes are implemented when someone challenges the dress code. In other words, as we talked about, a perfectly legal dress code can become illegal depending upon who it's being applied right. on. Right, And exactly. so it's, it's not just about writing it in a, in a handbook and then forgetting about it. I, yeah, I think, I don't know, remember if you mentioned this or not, but the motivation behind why the employee is choosing to, to dress or gro- have the grooming the way they are, that, that's the key. I mean, it's you could have two people that look exactly the same and if you take an adverse action against them, one could be legal and one could be illegal. <laughs> that's that's the, the difficult part for employers here. Very true. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. Any adverse, if, if you're not going to hire somebody or if you're going to fire somebody or going to reprimand them or even kind of uh, uh, demote them in any way based upon their non-conforming to the dress code policy, speak to an attorney beforehand. That's always our uh, capping advice here at the end to cap off the episode is just talk to an attorney. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone. I mean, this is our episode. We covered pretty much everything dress code. And uh, definitely let us know if you have any more specific questions. We are taking questions for and suggestions for future topics. So feel free to send that in as well. Yeah, very more ultimate legal breakdowns on the way. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast, The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. 
The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.